Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolanda, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And I'm feeling energized and renewed and ready to go today. And you know why? I don't. Because <laughs> my friend Kate Murphy on Sunday came to Derrida Church and preached for me to give me a Sunday off after a week of being sick myself and then taking care of a sick child. And so I'm just feeling all refreshed and um, I have lots to say today. Well, I'm glad because I really enjoyed being at Derrida and I am wrestling with this writing project. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll have plenty to say because I'm still me, but I am not, I'm not feeling on top of the world after. But I noticed uh, something about your preaching on Sunday. Oh, if, if, great. If I'm glad I, you're going to tell me this now. No, this is good. It's good. <laughs> if, if I were going to characterize your preaching as an element, it would be water. Because it's very fluid. I don't know if you have hmm. like really listened to your your cadence, but it just flows. And then you'll have a couple of places where th there's a wave and it will crest, and then there's just another flow. It's very interesting, and it's you you get it more listening to you live than on a video. Huh. Yeah. Well, good to know. And 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 your fire. You're fire. No, I am not fire. Let's let's You're just fire. let's just let's establish that now. I let's am just, not fire. Let's just trade compliments this whole hour because I think that would be fun. What is astonishing you? Well, um, so I have throughout my Christian experience um, had these words that, in particular seasons of life meant a lot to me and kind of summarized the faith for me. Um, I think in my earliest Christian experience, uh, the, the word was grace. Everything was grace, God's favor to me and salvation. And then in my um, young adult life, the word was power as I learned about the person and work of the Holy Spirit and saw myself as a person empowered by the Spirit to do and work and um, serve the Lord. And in this season, um, as, uh, as a middle-aged person, the word that just says everything to me is the word hope. And as I review like sermons from the past few years, like that's a, that's a regular theme in my preaching. Um, and I think the catalyst for it was reading N.T. Wright's book at some point. You know, I had to mention N.T. Wright, mm -hmm. my, sure. my Otherwise, academic crush. Somewhere an angel loses his wings. That's right. <laughs> um, he wrote a book, the first book I ever read, uh, written by him, um, Surprised by Hope. Mm -hmm. It's a great book. Um, so it, whenever I hear someone mention the word hope, it always gets my attention in this season of my life. And of course, I understand Christian hope to be not optimism or um, wishful thinking, but it's, it's a confidence that the future is going to be good. No matter what it looks like right now, the future is going to be good. 
And that is based on not my giftedness, not my strength, not my work hard, not my anything. It's based on the, um, the promises, the character, the track record of God. And, and we see that supremely and ultimately in raising Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. So all that is intro uh, to what is astonishing me. Uh, so the other day, other day, just yesterday, I had one of those um, moments listening to NPR where the story was so good that I just had to sit in the driveway and mm -hmm. finish listening to the story before I went into the house. And it was a story about um, the descendants of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee and the descendants of slaves uh, enslaved by uh, that family. And they have been meeting together over Zoom for the past couple of years. And uh, they have well, recently decided to meet in person. One of the things that struck me was that the descendants of Robert E. Lee said that they were amazed mm -hmm. that these descendants of slaves wanted to get to know them just as people. Yeah, wanted a relationship with them. Yes. Yeah. And part of the lie of white supremacy, part of the lie that is so um, strong mm -hmm. right now is that if white people are open to minorities in general, but black people in particular, uh, not only open to relationships, but the whole history, that what will happen is that minorities will take over and then will begin to oppress and that white people will um, then be in a place of being oppressed. That's the yeah. lie. And that is why you get a Ron DeSantis saying, okay, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to study here. Let's take this out of the schools. We're not even going to address these issues because we've got to, uh, we know that there's this cultural anxiety among white people that, that white people are losing the country. And so let's, let's not even engage here. Let's not only that, let's let's call it dangerous to engage. Yeah, let's I call it wokeism. Yeah, I think it's the the fear is two on two levels. One is there's a systemic fear that this system is the only system that will protect us. And so if white people are not um, prioritized and given preferential treatment, that we will be um you know, that the, the systems will be weaponized against us, that other people will prioritize their ethnic group and then we will be um, out. Like there is no way for actual mutuality and shalom and flourishing. So I think there's a system level fear. And then I also think there's a there's an interpersonal like um, fear that, that, and I think that's what this story speaks to, that if if we as white people, if I as a white person were to, you know, make myself vulnerable to a, a, a black person or a person of color over a historic or current situation wherein my actions condoned or my ancestors upheld a white supremacist system, that that, that relationship would only and ever be a relationship of rejection and shame and, um, you know, just, you know, yeah, rejection and shame. And so to have that story lifted up where the descendants of those enslaved by the family of Robert E. Lee 
and the descendants of Lee's family come together. And because that's what struck me about the article, too, is this the the descendants of Lee saying we are we're so surprised that people who were the descendants of those my ancestors enslaved would want to have a relationship with us at all and would want to have a relationship with us, not just in the context of this is the thing your ancestor did and that's all I need to know and all I ever want that we, they want to have a relationship with us as, as humans first. And I think that's the lie that the enemy tells us to divide us, which is we can't talk about this story because if this story is told, it will be become the only thing that matters and the only true thing about your identity and your children's identity and your children's children's identity. Therefore, the only way to move on is just to bury this story and and try maybe in all authenticity try to tell better stories in the future where you and you know you you can behave better and then say no me because of my better behavior yeah the other thing that um struck me about this story was that both sides said both groups said that the history of slavery was minimized Mm-hmm. For those who were enslaved, um, let's see, there was a woman um, sh- named uh, Cecilia Torres. She's featured, and um, she is the great-great-granddaughter of the slave of Robert E. Lee's, Robert e. Lee's wife, mm-hmm. right? And so she was talking about what her grandmother shared with her. And her grandmother always said that um, their an- that their ancestors were the ma- like the, the maids, servants, yes, the servants, and not the slaves. Mm-hmm. And so that was minimized. And then with the Lee family, they said, uh, you know, we we knew about slavery, we knew it was awful, we knew our family participated in it but we never talked about it. Mm-hmm. And so part of the healing and part of the reconciliation and part of the power of that whole um, meeting was to really acknowledge the reality of the pain and the, the awful um, history of slavery. Yeah, because you can't be reconciled if there's no acknowledgement that there's something to be reconciled from. Yes. So basically it's saying like you and I can be friends, but only if we pretend that there's always been justice and parity in this country between white people and black people. Like that's the only way we can be friends, which is to say then the history of what happened in the past is the most powerful and definitive force in the universe. And there's nothing that can transcend it. Right. Whereas we can say, no, we can be friends because we believe in the reconciling power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that means that in the context of this righteousness, that our friendship can bear wounds to the healing and repairing of all creation. But it's not because we deny what happened in the past. It's because we acknowledge it. And in acknowledging it, our friendship gets to bear witness to the transforming righteousness of Jesus. In hiding it, our friendship inadvertently says, no, what happened in the past is stronger, is more powerful mm-hmm. than what happened on Calvary. Yeah, and that really brings me to what is astonishing me in all of this, and that is um, when 
the ancestors of these enslavers and the ancestors of the enslaved met together uh, in Northern Virginia at the house where uh, the Lee family lived and these um, enslaved people uh, lived as well and the, the, the enslaved quarters are still there today. So they met at that house and um, it's, it's a national park now. And um, as they were meeting, a park ranger was watching the whole thing and listening in on the whole thing. And this park ranger happened to be an African-American woman. And she was astonished by the whole thing. And in the interview, she, she said with great emotion, um, this gives me hope for the country, because if they can do it, we can all do mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. so at that point, I turned the radio off and just kind of sat back in my chair, uh, in my seat, my car seat, and thought, yeah, we believe that the Church of Jesus Christ is, is a, a, a provisional revelation of what God intends for the entire world, that in the church, through Jesus Christ, God is bringing together people of various tribes, peoples, and languages into one new family. And if there's any group of people that can and should live this out, it is the church of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And if there is a group, if there is an institution that should cause people to look at it and say, that gives me hope, it, it should be, be the us. church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that means... Like these families, it means dealing with pain, dealing with things that are not pretty, um, looking. I mean, this was not this was not glorious glitter work. I mean, this you you look. This is not the way to make friends and influence well, people. Well, it, it right? took courage. You don't grow a mega church doing this. Right. Kind of I work. mean, it took courage for everyone involved yes. to not just show up at the. I think now it's the Arlington House that yes. day for the reunion, but for for years ahead of time to be regularly showing up and having brave conversations. And I, because I think like the key issue is, you know, what we see on the cross of Jesus Christ is that the presence of God is a presence of forgiveness and reconciliation of enemies, right? Like that is the revelation of the cross. And then God validates that by raising Jesus from the dead. And yes. so as people of Jesus Christ, if you want to follow in the way of Christ, then what we're saying is we understand that there are enemies and enmity in the world. And what we are saying is Jesus has shown us how to be more than conquerors. What we desire and we believe will produce righteousness and peace is not to defeat and destroy our enemies, but to be reconciled to them, right? Not everyone believes that, not even everyone in the church believes that because we've done such a poor job of proclaiming the cross, but it is, you know, I will know nothing among you, but Christ and him crucified. It is the stumbling block to the what the stumbling block to the Jews and the mystery to the Greeks, right? It, it, that's what, it, so to foolishness, foolishness. And so to say, look, we believe in the reconciliation of enemies, which is why white and black on both sides of the stories, people show up in a vulnerable way, in a vulnerable way as white people, in a generous way 
as black people and say, I desire reconciliation with you. Like I believe that our healing is bound up in one another. Not everybody desires reconciliation with their enemies. And I honor, like I acknowledge and honor that. But to me, I think that is, that's what the cross is about when Jesus is dying and saying, God, father, forgive them. Right. So that, that's why that's the central message of the church. And it's so sad that the enemy has so deeply infiltrated and twisted the gospel of Jesus Christ so that there are so many people who think that in crying out for the defeat and destructions of their enemies, that they are actually glorifying Jesus. And they're, they're not, I, they're not in my unhumble opinion. And, and, um, but I think it's really clear, like there are a lot of people, white and black who don't want reconciliation. And I, and I understand, you know, I understand that. I'm just saying, I don't think that you can make a serious Christian argument that reconciliation is not what God wants and is not what Jesus is proclaiming as the way to shalom and healing and salvation. Um, that I think that's what Jesus is saying. Now, other people say, no, the way to salvation is just, you know, separate. The way of salvation is power and control, you know, but, but that's not the message of the cross. Yeah. So what is astonishing you? Um, on Sunday night, I was at the Grove um, as a mother to my children who are part of the really beautiful um, ministry to youth there called Roots run by um, my friend Octavia Ramsey. And part of sort of the rhythm of the ministry that she is building with um, really incredible co-leaders um, is a, a spring production that, you know, because of pandemic and life, the last time they did it was five years ago. Um, but she's been working with the young people for, for months around a theme. Um, and this year the theme was um, Jack in the Box. And it was just a, this metaphor of like thinking about your life as a person in general, but particularly as an adolescent of like, you know, the, the box is kind of who you were and then there's this moment of becoming new, which is, you know, being sprung out of the box and just asking the kids to really think about like, where am I on my spiritual journey, on my identity journey? Am I, am I in this box? Am I prematurely springing from this box? Am I resisting a change? And, you know, and I, I just, and she's just sort of said to them, you know, we are together as a group going to individually um, tell the story, part part of the story, and you can do that in any way you want. You can make a video, you can write a poem, you can do spoken word, you can do a dance, you can do a skit, but like just, um, you know, doing that work of creating something to tell your story and sharing it with the church. And I just think it's so brilliant. Um, and so faithful to, and, and I don't know that the youth, I know Octavia is very intentional about what she's doing. I don't know that the youth understand. I don't even know that the larger church understands just how deeply holy and orthodox it is to say to young people and people in general, Hey, what God is doing in the world is not just contained in the pages of scripture and it's not just happening in the halls of the 
powerful or in famous people or, you know, like God is alive and at work in your neighborhood and in the context of your life. Like the gospel story is being written in your life and you're either, you know, leaning into that or resisting it, but like your life is part of the story of who Jesus is. And, and in saying to these young people, look, all I, what we're asking you to do is tell the truth. So not to say, here's the party line and here's what you need to say, but to tell the truth about like, are, you know, there's some real moments where some kids said like, actually, I'm not okay right now. Like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I'm becoming. I'm resisting God. I'm, but you know, I'm getting ahead of God. And I just think like to create a place, a church to normalize for these young people and the adults that the body of Christ is a place where we don't have to lie and we don't have to say that we're having an experience that we're not having. And to to bring people together, to bring these young people together and say, like, look, these are your brothers and sisters who are who are coming just to listen to what you have to say because you telling the true story of your life is sacred to us. And I mean, it's so beautiful, just the different ways that the young people showed up and, and just the different, um, you know, places where they were like chronologically maturity wise, like what was their unique way of telling that truth and, and to see the church just respond with just wild applause and affirmation and saying to these young people, like, we love you and we see you and we celebrate you as you are where you are. Um, and to see that the, you know, the biggest response in the room was when, and the moments when the kids were the bravest, right? Like when they really just, um, held nothing back and to applaud that kind of vulnerability and create, that I mean, I know that safe space is like a joke that people use, but like in the church, we need to be a safe space for one another and a safe space for just the messiness. And I think, you know, for all of the children, the young people was so sacred. Um, and I also just am particularly so grateful that for you see these young men standing up and like thinking deeply about, you know, who am I and what is God doing in my life and what is my participation in this and what, and sharing those stories at a time when like, there's so many really like Andrew Tate toxic versions of masculinity yeah. to be norming in our community that to be great in the kingdom of God means you you are vulnerable means you, you are introspective means you share your story and you listen to other people's stories and you trust the work that God is doing in you and in your neighbor. I mean, it was just so, um, astonishing. And I, and you know, that's a, um, that's not a thing that I think I mean, certainly isn't modeled or typical in a Presbyterian church. And I was thinking, you know, kind of in this mainline majority white um, context of the churches where I've been a part of, which I, I've gotten so much good from. But a lot of it is about like, well, if you're a, a person or particularly a young person, what I want to do is tell you what's the right way to think mm -hmm. and what's the right way to behave. Mm -hmm. And so to have this other like, deep wisdom from the spirit and from the lived tradition of a follower of Jesus who, you know, was not 
from the same branch of the body of Christ coming in and saying like, no, before it, you know, we, we can't tell kids do this and think this, and then you belong. Like we have to start from a place with humans, which is who you actually are is the sacred ground where Jesus meets you. And in the, anyway, so I just, it was so, it was so astonishing to me. And it's such a celebration that, you know, I did youth ministry for, for many years and that that's not a wisdom or a vision that I could have had. Um, and I, and, and so it's so also beautiful and deeply reassuring to see someone else leading in your community in a way that you do not have the experience, the capacity or the wisdom to lead and like feeling this deep peace and reassurance from that, that God is providing what God's church needs in this season. And you can trust that and you don't have to be this omnipotent, omniscient, you know, omnipresent person who has all proxy Jesus answers. Right. So anyway, I just sat there and like, as a, as a pastor and like, so happy, like just deliriously happy about what God is doing in the church. Um, and as a mother, like so grateful that my daughters are having their formative experiences of Jesus in the context of this community where, Anyway, it was it was just beautiful, and I am just astonished and so grateful to God for for everyone involved, and particularly for my colleague Octavia and just her, you know, bearing in love with the Grove as as we're becoming and and being so faithful to what God has given her and her vision. And anyway, it was just beautiful. Well, I've heard that uh, one reason uh, young people in general, but um, African-American young people in particular are leaving the church is because the church is failing to address three things, three very critical things in their lives. Number one, the question of identity. Who am I? Two, the question of value. What is my life worth? And third, the question of purpose. What am I supposed to do with my life? And one of the most helpful things for me in terms of the way I teach the Bible, like if, if I'm in a, a clutch situation and I don't have time to prepare, um, there's a Methodist minister who taught me how to do uh, what he called a theological Bible study. And he says a, Bibli uh, a, a theological Bible study is uh, you, you read the text and then you ask four questions. What does this text say about God? What does this text say about who I am? What does this text say about what God is doing in the world? And what is God calling me to do in the world? Mm -hmm. And I, I see that event um, at the Grove as forming young people in, in that mold, which is really powerful and creative and wonderful. And you, you're right. You don't see that a lot. No, it, I, I just, I'm, I'm so grateful. Yeah, so that's that's what's astonishing me. What are you thinking about? Oh, what am I thinking about? Well, I'm I'm a little hesitant to um, to talk about this because it's it's so personal and fresh, um, and I don't have a lot to say about it, um, even though it is really 
impacting me in a very powerful way, but I need to think about it a lot more. And that is yesterday I called um, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, uh, a friend and colleague of ours, just to say, hello, how are you doing? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like, I just feel like there are people that we mention so much on this podcast that there are people who are listening who are like, oh, you talk about so-and-so all the time. I know, <laughs> like right? That little, anyway, yeah. So I, I called this friend and um, he said, hey, my, my wife and I, <laughs> have been talking about you and um yeah i i think you are like the guy in the parable that jesus told about the talents and you're like the guy who buried his talent in the ground and i was like oh what (laughs) (laughs) i just called to say hey what's going on what's happening right now and uh he's like yeah you're you are you're not living into your giftedness. You're not being your full self. You are living below and doing ministry below what God has called and gifted you to do. And um, if this were not a friend of mine, I probably would have dismissed it, but this person is close to me. And um, and so I'm, I'm taking, and this isn't the first time he said this kind of thing. And so I'm taking it very seriously. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure what I need to do because this is not about a lack of working. This is not about being lazy. I mean, I expend a lot of energy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not putting my energy into the right things and the things that I am doing, I'm not being my full my full self. I'm not risking as much as I could risk. And so I'm going to take some time to really look at that and unpack that and to because I I suspect, even though I can't see it, I mean genuinely I cannot clearly see it in this moment but i suspect there is some truth there that i need to deal with i mean i i think so we we talked about this on the walk i i am not the friend um but i but you would would well i mean i my first thought was I, i mean i i know who it was and i i trust deeply this person's discernment so i was kind of startled but i but i mean not some people will say things to you and you're just like yeah, I'm not mad, but I'm also not paying much attention to this. Um, but this is a person that I I deeply respect. Um, and so I think, you know, the first thing that occurred to me is like, well, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Like this is this is someone who, you know, speaks out of a deep love and honor for who you are. And, and has known me longer right, than sure. any other pastor. This is the sure. first pastor to befriend me after my ordination. So he has known me for a long, long time. I mean, I think the other questions I I have are, you know, the the pushback that I would have to the extent that I have any is just, you know, the assumption in a lot of these things is that we we all agree on what success slash faithfulness is. And I and I don't know, I mean, I think we need a big overhaul um, you know, to re examine how, how we evaluate what it looks like, what we expect to see when people are using their gifts faithfully. So, you know, just setting that out there. But on the other side of it, and, and, and I, 
and it's ironic because I'm wrestling and failing right now at writing a final first draft on this book chapter on a chapter on losing and failing. And I just do think that a willingness to lose and a willingness to fail is a, is a really important part of faithfulness. And I think that's what he's getting at. Well, no, I, but here's what I want to say. I mean, I do think sometimes you, me, people in general, like we operate out of our anxiety instead of ironically given our earlier conversation out of our hope. Right. And so I think it is helpful to sort of think about, all right, if I, if this has come to me from a source that I really trust that Mm -hmm. to sit before the Lord and say like, what, what would I do differently if I knew for sure that it would bear fruit? Like, are there things that I'm not doing, like work that I am shortchanging, things I'm pulling back from because my anxiety or my fear of failure or, you know, the pressure from other places is making me think I can't afford or it would be a waste of time to be faithful in this way, in this area. And, and can I just sort of examine, like, is my practice of ministry being more deeply shaped by my hope or by my fear? And I think that's a real question for all of us. And to that extent, I think, you know, I, I mean, I think that's just very profitable. And mm-hmm. I, and I mean, I will yep. say that as a person who's like way outside of her comfort zone, like in deep, you know, just weird, unreasonable, like spiritual turmoil over this writing project, because it just, it's not something I think I can do. It's not something I feel like I should do. Like, it's just, um, just doesn't seem like it's for me. And I do think for a long time in my ministry, I, I, and our friend Lisa Coons like said this to me, years ago and it was really helpful she was like you take all the things in your pastoral life that you are most gifted in and that you love the most and you leave them for like the tail end and dregs and margins of your time and energy Mm. and you spend your most energy and your most time on all the things that you're least gifted in that you don't like that you, you know, it's like this sense of like, well, I got to eat my greens before I have dessert. And she was like saying like, if your gifts, if gift A and B and C are your strongest gifts, then in your time, you need to center those gifts. Like don't spend your most time doing the things you're worst at. And so I think that's really helpful. And, and if our theology is that like, we're not, you know, the omnipresent proxy Christ that has to do all things, if we really believe like, no, I have particular work and gifts that I'm called to do. And so I'm going to do them confident that there are other, maybe even more critical things that need to be done, but that's not mine to do. And so I'm, I'm not going to distort my gifting into doing it. Like, I just think that's really hard. And a lot of us were taught by anxiety and ego that we need to be the one man band, one man show in our congregations. And so we end up doing all the things that, especially the things that nobody else wants to do. And I think it's really hard to find that balance of like, not at all feeling like I'm the person who needs a reserved parking space and the best, you know, like I'm, I, it's not that I'm unwilling to serve. I'm very willing to serve and to do 
you know, the, the quote, shameful foot washing, you don't have eyes to see the holiness in that. But I also understand that if you don't ask a fish to climb a tree, and so if there are certain things, you know, and to me, when we were saying on the walk, like, I think your strongest gifting is in teaching scripture, preaching, and in pastoral care. And I think if you center all of those things, I trust that the Lord will bring other people into your community who need you to minister to them in that way. And then they will say, no, I'm, I'm a tech whiz and I'm looking for a way to you know, whatever. So that's my response to. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> when I was in the third grade, I had the nightmare of having a teacher who actually had a relationship with my parents. <laughs> like she knew my parents and my parents knew her. And um, I remember she wrote a note and sent it home with me once. And the note said, quote, Yolando is very bright, however, mm-hmm. <laughs> however, he does just enough to get by. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and again, that was not about lazy. Right. It was about lack of focus. Right. And that's yeah. what I'm hearing in all of this. It's like, I am, I do a lot. I do a lot. And so maybe this is a time, maybe this is a season, a moment where I need to refocus because you cannot do everything well. Well, and I just think a lot of us have maybe that sense and it's so uncomfortable that the way we numb it is just to work ourselves to exhaustion, right? Because I don't think the answer is to say like, oh, you're whatever the phrasing was, like you're not working up to your gifting and you're like, okay, then I'll join seven more committees and I'll start three more ministry initiatives. Like that's the way we, like no one can say I'm not working hard enough if I just like work myself to exhaustion. And I think that is, you know, a, a detour path away from saying like, no, the, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. So it's not, the answer isn't less rest and more anxiety and more stress and more busyness. The answer is a, a, a really brave process of discerning what is mine to do and what isn't mine to do. And that's really difficult work. Yeah. And in the parable that Jesus told, um, the, the one who buried his talent in the ground, it was really, it was based on fear. Right. And yeah. Well, I mean, and honestly, the thing that pushed me over the line in this book project was, um, a clear sense that it was just a matter of personal discipleship for me, but also recognizing by being literally waking up in the middle of the night and being unable to go back to sleep for months in a row. It's just like realizing that I need, like I can no longer live with the idea that maybe if I tried this, it would work. Right. And so if I'm going to do this and then, either I will be a person who wrote a book and whatever good things happen to it, or I will write a, be a person who wrote a book and am disappointed that 
X, Y, and Z didn't come from it. But what I will no longer be on the other side of this is a person who didn't write a book, right? And so I think just knowing like, okay, I, 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 can see, I considered this, I did this thing, and it could turn out to be like a colossal, pretentious waste of time. It could end up being a joke. It could be, end up being something I'm embarrassed of. But as, as uncomfortable as it is to risk all of that, it became more uncomfortable. Like literally I can't sleep through the night anymore because the idea of, well, what if I did it and it didn't suck became harder to live with. And so I think like that idea of saying like, okay, I'm, you're, I'm nearing 50. You are just a little bit past it. Like recognizing that we only have so much time left to do this. And so thinking about, no, a a day is going to come when I will not be a pastor. A day is going to come when you will not be a pastor. We will not be in this kind of ministry anymore. I'm wondering what my regrets are going to be. And I just want to know like, oh, I, I did that and that didn't work or I did that and it did work, but not to get to the end and say, I didn't well, try. Or what if, like, what if I was afraid and what if, like, I don't want to have any what ifs. Like, I want to, I want to know. Like, I have a friend who's published several books and I was talking to him about it and he was like, you two could join me in the great distinction of being like Amazon's 555th thousandth best-selling <laughs> author right like you just then you know and and I think there's just a, a sense of peace of knowing like Lord I I did this because I felt like you were calling me to do it and and maybe I got it wrong but there's no shame in trying to be faithful and getting it wrong like just to the parable of the talents like the Lord was not mad at what they produced the Lord was not mad at the servant who only did twofold as opposed to fivefold or whatever the numbers are mm-hmm. the the anger came at the one who refused to try and again if we're a people of hope then we're saying like look if i do this and something amazing happens then to god be the glory and if i do this and nothing amazing happens that i have no shame in in hoping either way in the god Lord. can be trusted right right yeah. All right, so that's enough of that uh, because my introverted soul is very uncomfortable I know, with pri- this conversation. Pri- so like, that's remarkable. Yeah, well, good for you. So what are you thinking well, about I, now good, that we I'm have glad. a few minutes I left? I know because this is going to be the second time that actually you know. the third. I have for several weeks just wanted to talk about. I have been thinking about um, this book that I recently finished, which is the autobiography of um, the memoir of. Um, Beth, Beth Moore. Moore called my tangled up life, my knotted up life. I'm sorry, I forget the title. Anyway, Beth Moore, if you don't know, is a was probably the most famous, celebrated, and uh, in terms of copies sold, published author within the Southern Baptist Christian tradition. So that is a conservative, evangelical, predominantly white white denomination, um, and she. Um, made a lot of headway news uh, in 2016. The Southern Baptist Church is a what's known as a complementarian church. Complementarian is just a clever remarketing of patriarchal, right? So it's just this idea that in the kingdom of God, the, the false idea that the kingdom of God is a hierarchy. It looks just like the hierarchies of the world, except this time it's okay because God's at the top of it and you just sort of rank people. So it's God at the top and then Jesus and then the Holy Spirit and then powerful rich men and then 
less powerful rich men and then their wives and then their daughters and then you know, black people and people of color, right? Like it just, just straight on down and like the rich are better than the poor and the strong are better than the weak and the powerful are better than the powerless. And this is just the way it is. And, and in the Southern Baptist uh, church, they just held on to really um, defined roles for men and women. So men can be pastors, women cannot, men can teach people, women can teach women. Um, you know, it, it, there's just a really authoritarian, um, strict dichotomy of um, what men can do and what women can do. And while of the complementarian um, rationale would say men and women are equal, um, but that that equalness leads to distinct roles and men are distinctly um, made by God to uh, rule <laughs> and women are made by God to be ruled over and uh, that's it. And everyone should stay in their appointed sphere and then we'll all be happy. Um, and Beth Moore, what's interesting about Beth Moore, I mean, you and I are, are part of a denomination that would would be termed egalitarian, which would be a non-hierarchical um, understanding of the kingdom of God and saying that, you know, people are created in their diversity, you know, pe people are created men and women, both in the image of God and that, you know, the prophecies of scripture about you know, the spirit of God being poured out on men and women and men and women shall prophesy, you know, the, the letter to Colossians saying that in Christ Jesus, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, like just like these things are true and that these categories that are used to um, define and um, limit in the world, in the fallen world are transcended in the kingdom of God. And so, um, that's what we would say uh, in terms of being an egalitarian church. Now, if you look at the most powerful positions that exist in our institutions, you will find that they are still held by men. But 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 don't look over there. Don't look at that. You know, and so we have people who are very mad at like Tim Keller. Like you can't learn from Tim Keller because he says that women can't be pastors in his church. But Every tall steeple church in our denomination practically is led by a man. And Tim Keller is also agrees with the majority of Presbyterian churches, which is that women are fine to teach children and youth and visit old people. They just can't be in the pulpit every week and actually leading organizations. And most people will say that the theology that espouses that is repugnant and wrong. But in their practice, you'll see that that is absolutely what people think anyway. I digress. What's interesting about Beth Moore is she found she's an incredibly talented um, Bible teacher. Yes. And uh, incredibly. And and I will say one of the things that's interesting for me, <laughs> ironically, there's just so many levels of irony in this whole story, is um as a as a person raised in an egalitarian church, I was taught explicitly that Beth Moore was um, just kind of like a vapid, empty-headed blonde bimbo, and nobody could learn anything from her because she didn't go to seminary, and she's part of this denomination that doesn't honor women. So, like, obviously she's an idiot, and why would anyone listen to her? And anyone who learns something from a Beth Moore Bible study is obviously just, like, trite and not a critical thinker. And I knew this and definitely believed it is true, even though I never would have done anything as foolish as actually pick up one of her books and look at it directly myself. And I can remember just being in a conversation with a tall steeple pastor in our presbytery who was talking about ministry at his church and was bemoaning like all the women in my church want to do is another Beth Moore Bible study, right? Like just this very scornful, dismissive idea of like, 
of course nothing good can come from her and and if you and then Beth Moore you know found this place in the Southern Baptist Church and she did not challenge complementarianism at all she was like look this is you tell me that this is the way God wants things to be I I will flourish where I am I will bloom where I am planted I will just teach the word of God to to women and I will dig deep and I know God will use me and I will look for male covering I'll stay in the system and so she, she did and got enormously popular and then um, the first time that things started getting visible was in 2016 after everything came out with the infamous Access Hollywood tape with the former president, Beth Moore, who is, as she details in her book, a survivor of sexual abuse, spoke out against this and really like incurred the wrath of her own community because people didn't care that Donald Trump had sexually abused and bragged about assaulting women because he was going to be a powerful guy and he was going to get their agenda through and it didn't matter. And it was at that moment that she, I mean, not just at that moment, but where she could no longer be silent about what she was experiencing behind closed doors, which is she would go to these conferences that would, you know, be for the whole body of Christ. And she would be invited to play a particular role. And there would be men who would be preaching and they would be all backstage in the green room. And these are like mega, like filling stadiums. Like there's big, big money at stake. And she'd be back in the green room with these men who who literally would not speak to her. Like she would walk up to them and say, oh, hello, so-and-so, I'm so happy to meet you. I've been so blessed by your you know, ministry and your teaching and I love your preaching and I just whatever. And they would look at her through her and walk away without acknowledging their existence because they were so mad that they had to be you know, on the same stage with this woman and they were so threatened by her success like what they would have seen what she had was success not and faithfulness her and her gifting but then they would come out on stage and they would make jokes about like Beth Moore's back there that blonde lady blah 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 like what you know and she would say like it would be one thing for you to tease me if we had a relationship if you but like for you to literally refuse to talk to me and then go on stage and mock me now she does not name names but you know she's exposing this is what it was like this is what I was putting up with but I always just assumed like well I don't who am I you know, who am I to say anything? Who am I to judge? I want to honor. I don't want to, you know, whatever. And and then when everything happened with Trump and people who were saying, essentially, I'm so committed to the hierarchy that it displeases God that you and I would be on the same stage because women need to be, you know, honored and, you know, protected and, you know, but then they were condoning the kind of um, just egregious sexual exploitation that this public figure was bragging about. And she said that was kind of her life bulb moment of like, you told me this was what was pleasing to God and I believed you. And now I'm seeing that you don't believe you. Like you actually don't believe in men having a hierarchical position so that they can protect women because now you're in a situation where you could stand up and say we won't support someone who behaves in this way and you won't do it because you you want the power that comes along with it and I anyway I just I was she wrote a memoir and because I had watched that play out and she left the SBC um, which was an amazing choice for her to make because you know she lost her 
publishing contracts. Like she, all our books were pulled out. I mean, like she, it was an enormous sacrifice. And and remind remembering that those of us in other parts of the body of Christ were taught, ironically, that because we were so serious about egalitarianism, we couldn't learn anything from that stupid bimbo who believed in complementarianism, right? So our, our commitment to women's rights were so strong that we needed to scorn this woman who was actually teaching and preaching in this denomination. So so she was leaving the only body where that would give her a platform. And then the rest of us were also so threatened by her gifting and like so offended that God would use her that she would not be welcomed by us either, right? And so she makes this really brave um faithful choice to say I can no longer stay within the structure and and give it credence um and 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 add give it um whatever legitimacy by my presence and so she leaves and so then she's um publishing a memoir and it's about my mixed up life and I heard an interview and she was saying like I decided I was never going to write a memoir until I, you know until I had could talk about what didn't make sense of my life because nobody needs another story of someone saying like well I learned this and then I did this good faithful thing and then this good thing happened to me and then I did the next faithful thing and learned the next right thing and then the next good thing happened to me and she was saying like I didn't want to write that memoir and I knew that people would look at me and think oh I'll read her book and get the formula like believe what she believes do what she does and then get her success I'm not writing that memoir but now that my life has collapsed I'll tell that story so I'm super intrigued so I want to read her book I respect her I'm already kind of ruining my own like hypocrisy and how I got hoodwinked into just dismissing her and then I opened up her book and I am telling you it is literature Mm. like Reading the first chapter of her book, I just, I mean, I came because I wanted to learn from her. I came because I wanted to read her story. But then when I looked it up and just realized like how beautiful and what an anointed and talented writer she is. And I'm like, dang it, this is what unconscious bias looks like, right? That I was surprised that her book was good. Why am I surprised? Because she isn't part of my tribe. <laughs> because she, you know, espouses a, an understanding of the kingdom that I disagree with. That I was taught that she was a threat to me instead of, a, you know, a sister and a sibling. And anyway, all this is to say, I've had like the whole gamut. I've like been converted so many times <laughs> over and wow. over again reading this book. It is so, so good and I, I, I really recommend it to people. I think she is, um, I, I, I just think that her story and her faithfulness has been such a gift to the church and people should read it and especially men should read it. Ooh. Well, um, I have it on my read list. My wife owns the book and so, um, yeah, I'll pick it up. Okay, I know we're out of time. I'm sorry. I just... Yeah. Y- yeah, we, we are out of time, but I wanted to say this one thing about Beth Moore. I first encountered her years ago, not as a writer, but as a teacher. And I remember turning on the television and seeing her teach in the round. She would stand on this, uh, sometimes it would be a platform, other times it would just be a room, and she would be um, uh, in the midst of a circle of women. And 
it, it's hard to teach to a group of people that are in, you know, like a classroom kind mm -hmm. of setting uh, uh, arrangement, but to have people all around you and to be able to engage them, uh, stunning, amazing. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. incredibly gifted. And I just want to... And I'm sorry. Oh, no. Well, and she is able to, when she teaches, she has a great way of being both narrative in her teaching so y you can just follow the story that she's telling the grand narrative and she couples that with being incredibly didactic she can teach mm -hmm. point one point two point three but all within a narrative flow it, it's so engaging and um i remember watching her this is years and years and years ago thinking okay I want to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, just what the marvel of the gifting that she has and the way you see the beauty and the glory of God differently through her, you know, using her gifts. And then also the way I, I personally am seeing how deeply I've internalized, you know, just hierarchical gendered structures that, you know, when a powerful successor successful man pastor says to me like oh, beth moore that i'm like oh yeah beth moore right, right? like right, i just right. go right, right into right, it without right. even thinking about it because i'm like oh the way that i show that i'm legitimate is to degrade another woman's gifting so, true confession i bought her stuff but put it on the shelf where no one could see it because I did not want that reaction. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, we're out of time, but thank you so much for listening to us. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Ooh. Church, it's D-E-R-I-T-A. And their website is deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. That's sites with an S. You can find their um, podcast on the Podbean website. You can find their uh, YouTube channel, um, Derida Prez. So look it up or you can worship with them at 11 a.m. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, look, it sounds like I'm like speeding up. If you're listening to this at two times speed, like, sorry, not sorry. Um, we're the Grove Charlotte.org. You can go to our podcast on iTunes or, you know, wherever. You can check out our YouTube channel, just um, the Grove Charlotte, the Grove Church. Just look for the green tree and you can worship with us at 10 a.m. We um, have some amazing, amazing, amazing guest preachers for the next three weeks. So you should check them out. And thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next week.